I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 13, and upon turning there, you're going to quickly discover that this is another psalm of despair. So some of you may be tempted to ask, haven't we just recently heard some messages on despair and anxiety? And the answer to that question is an emphatic yes. So why another one? Good question. Fear, anxiety, and depression are so often found in God's Word that the acronym in which they form, F-A-D, is a fad or a common theme in Scripture. And these overlapping themes of emotion are so common to us all in life, we shouldn't be surprised when Scripture has so much to say about them. We find ourselves in the Psalms, and in many ways we can process our lives through the lens of what David and the other psalmists experience. Charles Spurgeon expressed it this way, Whenever you look into David's Psalms, you will somewhere or other see yourself. You never get into a corner, but you find David in that corner. I think that I was never so low that I could not find that David was lower. And I never climbed so high that I could not find that David was above me, end quote. These are fitting words as we travel below sea level to see what uh, David experiences. And I want you to notice the spiritual progression that he makes. The heart of our message is this. When discouraged and despairing, David prayed to God for his deliverance and soon found himself trusting in God's care and rejoicing in God's faithfulness. Let me try that again. When discouraged and despairing, David prayed to God for his deliverance and soon found himself trusting in God's care and rejoicing in his faithfulness. Let's go ahead and read this psalm together, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and this is what it says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall the enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The living and abiding word of God. Amen. Have you ever felt distant from God? Have you ever felt like he's abandoned you? Perhaps there's even someone here today that is feeling that way right now. For others, maybe it isn't distance so much as it is indifference. You, you feel numb or indifferent toward your relationship with the Lord. Spiritually, you feel like a flat tire, deflated, and struggled, struggled to take steps forward in your spiritual walk. Years ago, and if that's me static, and I'll try to stay still so that doesn't happen again, um, 
Years ago, while living up in Alaska, I had a group of friends, and we go for uh, long hikes um, up into the mountains. And uh, personally, I'm okay with that occasional hike. I'm not one of those people that wants to go out hiking ever, every single weekend. And I know that there's some of you in the room that are inclined to do that. My experience hiking was just, let's say, very predictable. Yeah. Um, there was excitement about seeing a new, a new destination in Alaska, whether that was a majestic waterfall or a mountaintop view, or sometimes if you go on these deep hikes, you could even get back and see a giant glacier. It was cool. And the fun of being around friends, that added some enthusiasm and, and, and excitement as you work together as a team to uh, climb some pretty steep trails. This was always the feeling that I had when leaving the car to begin the hike. But my experience radically changed on the return hike back to the car. I found myself looking at scenes that I've already seen before. My legs were tired. My feet were sore. Most of the food and water I had brought, had food and water had slowly disappeared. And I would find myself saying under my breath, so nobody else heard, how much longer till we get back to the car? Am I alone in that experience? Has anyone been there with me? Yeah? I think this illustrates the Christian life. On some days we feel excited and motivated about experiencing something new that life might bring our way, a big vacation, an exciting event, or celebration. But more often than not, we experience more mundane days, almost said Mondays, which those are the mundane days, than, than not. We, we, we typically, that is how we feel. And we get weighed down with the fatigue and responsibilities and things that we have done and seen before. And worse yet, we can get overwhelmed by trials or circumstances or even patterns of temptation and sin causing depression and despair that leave us asking the question, how much longer do I have to keep dealing with fill in the blank? No matter where you find yourself spiritually, Psalm 13 provides a framework to think accurately about your present circumstances. It will be especially helpful to those who are suffering hardship or are going through a trial, those that find themselves in a season of depression or maybe severe anxiety um, or fear. And I have titled the message, Despair, Prayer, and God's Care. And the first aspect that Psalm 13 draws our attention to is David's despair. Look again at verses 1 and 2. And one thing you and I should quickly take notice of is what gets repeated. The words, how long, are repeated four consecutive times. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? And how long will my enemy triumph over me? It is an effective way of saying 
that this trial that David was going through had lasted for quite some time. And isn't this so true of us when we find ourselves enduring trials? How much longer, Lord? Why does this keep happening to me, Lord? These emotions were like layers of fog that clouded David's brain. In our series in the Psalms, starting with Pastor Adam and continuing on with Jeremy Bolo and then to David Duncan, then to Bobby Robbins, and then to Chris Peterson, all of them, or most of them, I should say, have provided some perspective on the background of David's life. As you already know, David is a fugitive at this point, and he's surrounded by men of bloodshed. We know about his infamous sin with Bathsheba and the loss of their child. We know about the murderous plot and execution of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. We already know about the, um, the, the, the ripple effect that his sinful choices have had on his family. It has been duly noted that much of what David was facing was a consequence of his sinful choices. Not all, but most were self-inflicted wounds. So there's a lesson for us right out of the gate. So often our feelings of despair and depression can be consequences of sinful choices that the Lord is calling us to repent of. And this was the case for David. But it isn't always the case for everyone. In the equipping class that I taught a few years back, some of you uh, may have recalled it. It was called Out of, Out of the Blues, A Biblical Perspective on Depression and Suicide. And I covered this at length, um, the, the different types of, of depression. And if you want a, a thorough treatment of depression and suicide, you can actually find that under our ministry tab on our church website. And um, you'll have to go back a ways because it, it was a while back. But in that class, I covered all the different causes of depression. There are biological causes like postpartum and depressions that are caused by medical diseases. There are situational uh, depressions that are caused by job loss or loss of a, a loved one or debilitating accidents. Those cases of depression are most recognizable and understood. But we also covered causes of depression spiritual causes of depression at greater length. We talked about idolatry. And not just uh, small measurements of idolatry, but um, the way that an idol can move into your life and a career can dominate your life so much so that it it, it pushes out uh, the worship of the Lord. It pushes out your obedience to God. We can make excuses time and time again because, oh, my career or my job or I do this, but, right? And quickly as that idol grows, we see God is pushed back. We talked about blatant disobedience and continuous patterns of unrepentant sin, which is pretty straightforward. But if you live in rebellion, God's hand, just like David's, he felt it. It was heavy-handed on him. Day and night, he felt the heavy hand of God. And that's God's love. That's God's pursuit of you to bring you back to, to himself and to cause your heart to repent of your sin. 
And we covered unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment, just to name a few more examples. So it's a healthy question for us to ask, is there anything in your walk that the Lord is calling you to repent of that is potentially blinding you spiritually? I would make a a great mutual ministry question for life group this week. The deceptions and lies of David's emotions caused a total eclipse of God's heart. So much so that when he was tempted, even tempted to to ask if God had forgotten all about him. So much so that David experienced sorrow and deep depression in his heart all day long. So much so that he even questioned the Lord's ability to protect him from his enemies. Pretty remarkable. Yes, the same David who stood before the Philistine giant Goliath as a boy to strike him down. The same David who had killed his 10,000s was now suffering from spiritual blindness and fear of man that overwhelmed him. We are just as vulnerable to the same deceptions. And if not careful, our emotions can begin to tell us lies too. God doesn't care about you. God will never forgive you again. You can't be a Christian and be this depressed. Your life is not worth living. I am worthless. My life would be so much different only if I have nobody who cares about me. I cannot possibly go on like this. These deceptions will blind us spiritually and also cause a total eclipse of God's heart for us too. So what was the path out for David? This leads us to the hinge point of this psalm in verses 3 and 4 and the second point in our outline. David's despair opened the doorway to David's prayer. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Here the New American Standard says, enlighten me, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David's spiritual compass immediately takes him north and allows him to fix his eyes on the one who can help him see with clarity through this dense fog of despair. And for the true child of God, there is always some awareness of this truth. Regardless of how deep his or her depression might be, we may be depressed even to the point of feeling utterly abandoned. But the fact that we feel abandoned of itself means that we really know that God is there. Think about that. As one commentator shared, to be abandoned, you need somebody to be abandoned by. Because we are Christians and we have been taught by God in Scripture, we know that God still loves us and will be faithful to us regardless of our feelings. Amen? And so what are we to do? We pray, as David does. And this doesn't exclude if you are suffering from a severe or dark depression that you might need to get some extra counsel and discipleship to work through 
um, the valley that you may find yourself in. But it does mean that, above all, we need to pray. We need to pray urgently and fervently about our feelings so they don't take us down a fleshly and worldly path. And notice David's prayer has three requests with implications. Consider or look on me, answer me, and give light to my eyes. Or as the Nasby said, enlighten me. His feelings tell him that God has turned away from him, hiding his face. So the first thing he asks God to do is turn around and look in his direction once again. His feelings tell him that God is no longer speaking to him and will never speak again. So the second thing that he asks God to do is answer his questions. His feelings have told him that all is lost and that the enemy will be victorious. So he asks God to give light to his eyes so that he will be preserved and see the situation with clarity. If I can summarize what just took place because of David's prayer, it's this. God's truth through the power of prayer prevailed and started to govern David's emotions. Truth must govern our emotions, not the other way around. Listen to how Spurgeon confronts David's emotional thinking in this extended quote on Psalm 13 that we're going to put up for you. And I, I just met my quota from Bobby Robbins, who says apparently you have to have two, or was that Chris, who said you had to have two Spurgeon quotes. So this is the, just fulfilling my obligation. This is really striking. How long will you forget me? Ah, David, how like a fool you talk. Can God forget? Can omniscience fail in memory? Above all, can Jehovah's heart forget his own beloved child? Ah, brethren, let us drive away the thought and hear the voice of our covenant God by the mouth of the prophet. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her suckling child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yeah, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee? Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands and thy walls are continually before me. And then he mentions David saying, will you forget me forever? And he talks about forever. Oh, dark thought. It was surely bad enough to suspect of temporary forgetfulness. But shall we ask the ungracious question and imagine that the Lord will forever cast away his people? No, his anger may endure for a night, but his love shall abide eternally. His quote continues, and this is the last portion. How long will you hide your face from me? This is a far more rational question, for God may hide his face, and yet he may remember still. A hidden face is no sign of a forgetful heart. It is in love that his face is turned away, yet to a real child of God, this hiding of the Father's face is terrible, and he will never be at ease until once more he has his Father's smile. End quote beautiful. And we recognize what he's talking about there. That's just the fellowship um, that, that we have in our sin. It's, God doesn't want to be looking at us as believers sinning. That's not something he enjoys. He saved us from that, right? And then we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get that. And his face can shine upon 
us again. It gets used in, in Numbers 6, 24 um, uh, through 26. That expression is a benediction. I know Adam uses it as a common thing. May his face shine upon you. It's blessing. And we know that blessing comes through our obedience. We all know these feelings were very real to David, don't we? And I know your feelings and my feelings, they're very real to us too. But we must exercise great caution to make sure that our fears and our anxieties and our depressions don't eclipse the truths of Scripture or worse yet, become sinful. And I'm thankful for your testimony, Stacy, that just shared that, the agoraphobia, the, the, the fear of panic attacks. What, what, was the, what rescued you? It was the truth of what God's Word said. You went back and saw that He breathed life. That helped you breathe. Someone once said, or asked me, how do I know when my legitimate concerns about life move into the realm of sinful anxieties? And it was an intriguing question. And I responded with a question to him. I said, when does a lie become a lie? There's a point when a line is crossed and the threshold of truth is compromised. And the same is true of our sinful fears, sinful anxieties, and despondencies. They become sinful when the truth is compromised. And what does this look like practically? Well, anyone who's ever been in my office, you know I have those uh, uh, white erase boards off on the side, and I leave a lot of the same thing uh, up because I, I, I constantly make reference to it. And one of the things over on the, the right side of my whiteboard, it says overcoming feelings. And then there's three things that are listed beneath. Number one, faith. Number two, facts. And number three, feelings. Faith leads the way because it calls us to a complete and absolute trust in the Lord despite of our circumstances. True faith affirms the goodness of God and that he understands exactly what we're going through because he ordained the circumstances and trials of our lives. Faith encourages us to trust a sovereign God. Do you trust a sovereign God with your life and what you're going through? Amen. Number two, facts. What does biblical truth say about my spiritual condition? What are the facts about the circumstances that I find myself going through? What does God's word have to say about how I am feeling? My fears, my anxieties, my anger, my lusts. Faith and facts serve as filters so that we are not overwhelmed or governed by our emotions which so easily can betray and mislead us. Faith and facts point us to the truth of God's word that address sinful fears, anxieties, and depressions and inform us to make sure that we are not compromised. We know God's word commands us not to fear over 365 times in Scripture. I think Bobby said it was do not be afraid or do not fear. It was around 500 times. But the command uh, do not fear, over 365 times, and somebody suggested that's one, one command per day. 
it's just, it works out that way. That's how practical it is. We know that God's word is filled with hope and promises uh, for the believer to offset despondency and that hope and peace are fruits of the Holy Spirit that he wants to give to us. We know that God's word warns us that anxiety in a person's heart is going to weigh them down and that Jesus prescribes the cure for us. In Matthew 6, in verses 25 through 34, he commands us not to be anxious about tomorrow, but to remember that each day has enough trouble of its own. And we sang about that. The tomorrows. He's got it. We don't even know what's going to happen. It doesn't make sense for us to worry about it. Don't worry about the mountain of tomorrows that you may face. Just climb the manageable hill of today. And his grace is sufficient for all of us to do that. The Apostle Paul affirms the Lord's teaching on anxiety in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that ironically reflects the same spiritual progression that David makes back in Psalm 13. Keep your finger in your Bible and flip over to Philippians 4 so you can see it. Or I guess if you're on your phone, you're keep your finger on your phone or open a new tab. The parallels are striking. Familiar text, but I want you to, I want you to see the parallels. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Or be anxious for nothing, depending on your translation. And this corresponds directly with Psalm 13, 1 and 2, where David is extremely anxious. He's worried that God has forgotten and abandoned him. He's worried that his enemies are going to prevail. He's also greatly worried about what people inside his own camp are going to think about him if his enemies should prevail. That's a big thought. Thankfully, none of us our worries about what other people think. Yes, I was being facetious. Philippians 4, 6 continues. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is David's response in Psalm 13, verses 3 and 4? He does what? He prays, right? Right here's the progression. Consider me, Lord. Answer me, Lord. Give me some light, Lord. David discovered where he would find his peace, and it was through his prayer to the Lord. And there's a direct parallel with verse 7 in Philippians 4 as well. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Time won't allow us to chase this rabbit, but that word guard is is so sweet. It's actually the same, uh, same Greek word used in 1 Peter 1.15 that says believers are guarded or protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. It's his protection. He can guard us. And the same spiritual progression is prescribed for us as New Testament believers in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that we see in Psalm 13, despair should lead us to prayer, which will eventually allow us to see what God's care 
Back to Psalm 13 so we can see how David expressed um, what God's care looked like. This is what he says in verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is Yahweh's covenant-keeping love coming from the one who has never broken a promise, ever. That's the love we're talking about here. The hesed love, the covenant-keeping love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Raise your hand if you're someone in the room that knows where pearls come from, right? Most of us know that, right? They're found in oysters and clams on the seafloor. Pretty amazing. But not many of us know the process of how pearls are made. So allow me to enlighten you a little bit. Natural pearls are formed naturally, by wild oysters or clams living at sea without any help from humans, which is actually the difference between a cultured pearl and a natural pearl, because they actually uh, have these farms where they farm uh, uh, cultured pearls. When a natural irritant, such as a fragment of a shell, a scale or a parasite becomes lodged inside an oyster or clam, it gets coated with layer upon layer of a substance that's called nacre, which is the white and cream stuff that we see on the outside of the pearl, thus giving them their beauty. Contrary to popular belief, and I had to learn this one too this week as I was studying up on my pearls, they are not formed from grains of sand. If sand were enough of an irritant, our ocean floors would be littered with millions of natural pearls. So, there you have it. But our illustration continues. And the muscles inside oysters or clams respond to the irritants by covering them more and more with protective layers. Not only does this protect the oyster and the clam from the irritant, but it forms something very beautiful in the process that we get to call pearls. The largest pearl, natural pearl, ever discovered was by a fisherman in the Philippines and weighed a staggering 75 pounds. And that was taken outside, uh, taken from in, the inside of a giant clam. The pearl is valued at over a hundred million dollars. So you ladies might need to work out if you ever want to wear that thing around your neck, <laughs> on your hand. Um, oh, goodness. <laughs> ladies, look what my husband got me for Christmas. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> I look like Adam preaching there for a minute. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this is going downhill fast. Okay. Regroup, regroup. Come on back in. <laughs> oh, okay. The point of this illustration is that the irritant is covered to form something extraordinary and beautiful. 
And now I want you to think about the pearl of great price. The Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven while we were irritants to God. It's true. Look back at Genesis 6 sometime. When God was sorry that he even made mankind because of the great wickedness that he saw. We were all irritants to God. But Jesus came not only to rescue us, but to cover us with grace, to redeem us by faith and to form something beautiful out of us. And it's a reflection of the gospel that is covered in his blood. It is the ultimate expression of God's love and care for us through the power of the gospel. Romans 5, 8. While we were yet irritants, Christ died for us. Have you been redeemed by the pearl of great price? Have you confessed that you're a sinner and have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins so that you're covered by the grace of his blood? Jesus paid the penalty on the cross when he died as a substitute in your place and mine. And he completely absorbed the eternal and thrice holy wrath of God the Father And when you place all your faith in Christ, you will get covered by the grace of the gospel. Amen. Are you covered with Christ's righteousness? Or are you someone here today who mistakenly thinks that you can clean yourself up on your own spiritually? The gospel calls you to deny yourself to deny any self-righteousness or any spiritual efforts that you somehow think that you can make. It's the clarion call of the gospel. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Christ, and you will get covered by the grace of the gospel. Salvation is by faith in the Lord. Salvation is by faith in the Lord, just as we heard this morning in the baptism testimonies. David saw his prayer answered, and God's care was immediately recognized in verses 5 and 6. Look again at the truths David mentions about God's care. Your steadfast love, your salvation, your abundant blessings in my life. And right about now, you might be saying, well, good for King David. And I'm happy things worked out for him in the end. Love, salvation, blessings, that all sounds great. Let's just sing Kumbaya and go home. Oh, dear friends, the covenantal love of the gospel is to have a ripple effect in our lives. The first place we see this covenantal love is reflected by the gospel is in marriage. Did you know that God designed husbands and wives to make pearls together. He did. It's true. Each spouse is the irritant for the other person by divine design. (laughs) And you're really, you only have two options. You can either push the irritant away 
and not apply the power of the gospel in your marriage, or you can cover the irritant with grace that Christ applies to love and forgive. And this is how the Lord designed it to work. It's his plan for marriage. It is living out the gospel practically because the pearl of great price made that possible so that when we do get irritated, and I'm thankful to have a forgiving wife. She wasn't paying attention when I looked over, so. (laughs) I'll tell you later. Um. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's true. We, we, we need to give each other grace, and that's what the enabling power of the gospel allows us to live out, right? We're all wretched sinners. We're all wretched irritants, and yet God redeems us with purpose. And that love can be spilled out and overflow in our relationship as we're kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another just as Christ has forgiven us. But if all of a sudden we lose focus on God's plan for us, they become just an irritant. And you know what? I don't want to be around an irritant. I'm just going to push them away. And I'm not going to treat them kind And guess what? They're going to get hard-hearted, and it's only a matter of time before unforgiveness shows up on the scene. And you find your marriage in complete and utter shipwreck. Apply the covenantal love of the gospel to your marriage. It's his plan for marriage, and it's his plan for our families. Pretty soon we give birth to little irritants (laughs) called children. And yes, and kids, don't be offended by that. We were kids once too, so we were irritants. We're all irritants. And they're going to need a lot of love and forgiveness too. But guess what? It needs to be modeled for them to have maximum impact for the sake of the gospel. It's his plan for marriage. It's his plan for our families. It's his plan in our communities and the watching world. Dad, when you get up to go to work in the morning, guess what you're going to find more of at work? You said it. Irritants. Kids, when you get on the school bus in the morning or you get dropped off at school and you're walking down the hallway, guess what you get to find more of too? More little irritants to join the party. And that's just as true of whether you go to a public school or whether you go to a private school, my friend. And it's by divine design. And the question is whether we shall cover the irritants with love and grace and forgiveness and make a difference with our gospel impact? Will we be like David, who progressed in his journey that took him from despair to his knees in prayer, which ultimately allowed him to celebrate God's care? At the beginning of the message, I shared a story about my hiking experience. And after studying Psalm 13 while 
reflecting on that experience, I believe I learned a valuable lesson, and I think David learned a similar one too. It's not about the destination. It's about the experience. It's not about the destination. It's not about where you even find yourself or what cave you might be in today. And I'm not minimizing that, especially if there's someone going through deep valley of darkness. But it's about the experience. It's about you seeing the Lord in the same way that David did. And that one day that you'll be able to look back and see God's care for you. His steadfast love, his great salvation, and the abundant ways that he dealt bountifully with you, even when you were at your weakest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for allowing us to be fed from Psalm 13 and for the spiritual meal that you have provided and even for the, the, the courses of the meals that we were served this morning through prayer, through singing, through the baptism testimonies to even now having a chance to allow our hearts to respond to you, our great God. And we thank you for your steadfast love, your covenantal love that we get to trust in when we turn to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here today that hasn't yet fully and completely repented of their sins and asked you to forgive them that today would be the day of salvation for them and that they would commit their life to following Christ, to be discipled by him and to be discipled by others. And Lord, for those who are going through deep valleys or perhaps even coming out of one, I pray that this message would be an encouragement to their heart as they go back and just see the spiritual progression that you allowed David to make. A life filled with so many challenges. Most of it self-inflicted, sinful choices. And yet, through it all, you allowed him to learn something very valuable. It's not about the destination. It's not about where we find ourselves today or what we're going through, it's about our experience with you and knowing you, that you're right there with us and beside us. So I pray that that will continue to be on our hearts and our minds and that you'll continue to allow us to practice and extend the same love and forgiveness that was extended to us as irritants, that you would allow that to happen in our homes. And I pray for those marriages. I pray, Father, for those that are hurting and struggling to forgive, even right now, that you would give grace upon grace and that you would help them to cover those offenses and to do the work that only you can do and to trust the power of the Holy Spirit through the reforming change that can come through the gospel and that it would impact their kids and their grandkids 
and their friends at the school and their coworkers. Because that is exactly how you have designed it. And we praise you for that. We celebrate that. Thank you again for this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.